Alright, the light is on, the tape is rolling, and you are in the two-man booth with Nick Good and Neil Cochran, and we are co-hosts for this podcast about TV, sports, movies, whatever you feel like talking about. This week we are continuing our NHL expansion series part two. Um, thank you for joining us again. Last time uh, we were with you, we talked about the, the deep history of the NHL, uh, back to around the original six, the original expansion. Up through the 60s, 70s, 80s, the WHA merger, and we finished off talking about uh, Alan Eagleson and uh, the inaugural NHLPA executive director and eventually his ousting in the early 90s after it was uncovered that he had been embezzling a lot of union funds. So, uh, yeah, that's just a little recap. So, uh, Bob Goodnow will... Be named uh, on the first of January 1992 as his successor as executive director. Um, again, there were a few moves uh, in the 80s. Uh, Flames moving from Atlanta to Calgary. Uh, the Colorado Rockies moving to New Jersey to become the Devils in 1992. Um, but for the most part, from the merger in 79 up until 91, the, the league would remain at 21 teams, even though some would move around. Um, and this, so this is a long period of stability since the original six era for the NHL. Um, but by the uh, 1991-92 season, labor peace between the owners and the union starts to crumble a bit, especially spearheaded by Goodnow, who becomes quite a hard line. No uh, cap kind of guy. Yep, and we'll get to that, um, which is going to lead to some craziness that happens in the 90s and into the 2000s. <laughs> but before that, we're going to go back to the late 80s with something a little Euler-centric known as The Trade. So this this plays a massive role. So even further back in 1979, Jack Kent Cooke, who had owned the Kings, uh, had built the farm, which we talked about. He also owned the Lakers. Uh, He ends up selling the Lakers, the Kings, and the farm to Dr. Jerry Buss for a then-record $67.5 million deal. Today's so that's mon- pretty good to get three... Today's money around $235 million. I mean, that's not even the price of one now. Exactly. But- uh, then in the mid-80s, 1986, Jerry Buss would sell 25% stake in the Kings to a man by the name of Bruce McNall. In, in 1987, McNall would uh, purchase an additional 24%, making him a minority owner. owner. And then in, 19, in March of 1988, he would buy the remaining shares from... Uh, or at stakes from Jerry Buss to become controlling owner of the Kings. First order of business. <laughs> Just hours following the Oilers' 1988 Stanley Cup win, Wayne Gretzky would be informed by his father, Walter, that Peter Pocklington had been shopping Gretzky during the season, uh, particularly having conversations with the Kings, the Red Wings, and the Canucks. Canucks. I know. I think of Gretzky as a fucking Canuck. Uh, <laughs> Gretzky was initially You're a Red Wing. Oh god. Gretzky was initially reluctant to leave Edmonton, but after receiving a call from McNall, call from McNall, a persuasive man. Before hearing anything from Pocklington, Gretzky felt slighted and absolutely made up his mind that he would accept a trade to Los Angeles. Uh, one of his conditions, though, was that teammates Marty McSorley and Mike Krzyzewski were traded along with him. So on the 9th of March or 9th of August 1988, the three were traded to the Kings by the Oilers in exchange for Jimmy Carson, Martin Jelena, 
Here's the key. $15 million in cash. That would go right into old Pistol Pete's pocket. <laughs> and the Kings 1989 first rounder, which was later traded to the Devils. Uh, the 1991 first round, uh, 1991 first rounder, which the Oilers would use to draft Martin Ruschinski, and 1993 first rounder, which the Oilers would use to trade Nick or use the Oilers would use to draft Nick Staldyer. Oof, that's a tough look. Three first round picks, and that's what you. I got actually, out. so I read a thing on NHL.com when I was doing research for this, and the, by analyzing the assets that were in the in the trade and considering how Carson performed for the Oilers the following season, they actually said the Gretzky trade was quite balanced. It was quite fair for both sides. There we go. Mm-hmm. It's just not the Oilers or the Kings fault. The Oilers bumbled the draft picks. Basically. It's like, it's like when Will walks into the office and he says to, to, uh, what's his fucking name? Uh, for which Stellan Skarsgård's character. Oh yeah. He says, uh, you know, I, I just watch you fucking bubble, watch bubble, bubble around all day. All the yeah, fucking yeah. Oh, have done. You know how fucking easy this is? Yeah. Really watch you f- I can't stand to watch you fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like poly watching some of these guys. Uh, so, but general manager, sorry, back, back, to, back to 1988. Uh, general manager Glenn Sather had tried to stop the trade, even offering to step down in order to keep Gretzky and Edmonton. But Gretzky was firm and had even tried... And so after that, uh, Sather even tried to have Luke Robitaille involved in the trade rather than Carson. Didn't happen. And now here's the important thing. So we're talking about, if you want to know more about the Gretzky trade and the aftermath, the hockey side of it, uh, definitely watch the very first, actually, 30 for 30. Yeah, King's uh, Ransom. King's Ransom. Really, really good. Uh, they interviewed Gretzky years later in the mid-2000s, asking him about it, his mindset at the time. Uh, and he even says afterwards in the inter- in the documentary, you know, if I would have had another night to sleep on it, I probably would have stayed. Yep, because he did get offered to yep. to stay. Yep. Bocklington told him he would take it off the table mm-hmm. if it was really what he wanted. So um, Anyway, uh, the reason why we're talking about this trade, even though it's a heartbreaking moment in Oilers history, um, McNall would immediately void Gretzky's contract. Remember, it was a personal services contract with Pocklington. So McNall would void that, which was paying Gretzky just under a million dollars a year. And would then offer Gretzky a contract that would pay him $3 million a year. Um, This is now going to lead to a spike in salaries over the next half decade to the mid-90s. And it's going to lead to a lot of issues as we move forward. Um, But the Gretzky trade would also lead to more vested interest in NHL in the southern United States. It would pave the way for for inaugural NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman's expansion push into the Sun Belt. The Sun Belt strategy. Yes. Um, okay, so we're going to go into chapter 8 here now. The wild 90s. Uh, the, <laughs> oh, it's wild. The 91-92 season would be the beginning of a decade of change for the NHL. Each year involving either the introduction of an expansion team or a relocation. Except for the 1995 shortened season, but we'll get to that. Uh, within 10 years, the NHL would grow from 21 teams to 30. With the main uh, attraction for the league to gravitate towards rich American corporate owners. And expand, like we said, into the Sun Belt. Something former NHL president President John Ziegler, as we talked about, was very reluctant to do, yes. considering the failure of the Flames and other teams like that. Mm-hmm. Which um, he was not but wrong. It'd be, but it would be one of the main focuses of Gary Bettman's role as commissioner. Um, the what NHL is- was inclined to pursue ownership groups who are readily committed to paying the $50 million expansion fee. This that is important. To be, that seemed to be the trigger. And this is partially 
the reason why we talked about Eagleson is partially part of this reason is the NHL agreed to pay back the Oilers pen, or the Oilers the, the players', players pensions, pension. and this was an, a way of doing it because the expansion fees go directly to the owners. It doesn't get distributed to any of the players or anything like that. So the any expansion fee money. Owners distribute it between themselves, but they get to keep that as profit. So, yes, if you have to try and now make up $30 million from a pension, well, expansion fees will help with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And this would lead to rash commitment to some perhaps ill-conceived ownership groups and markets. sure, yeah. Lots of these teams are still struggling. So the first one we're going to start with, not so struggling, but the San Jose Sharks, the first expansion team of the 90s, 91-92 season. The Gund Brothers, who we've talked about, and I know their first names, and I forget them, but I don't care because I just refer to... I I like the Gund Brothers, just sounds... (laughs) Yeah. They'd own the Cleveland Barons, subsequently the uh, Minnesota North Stars. And remember, we talked about that weird merger thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to move the North Stars to San Francisco, but the NHL wanted to keep the franchise in the more traditional hockey market of Minnesota. So a compromise was reached. Ooh. Where Neil, what are the details of this compromise? Okay, so as Nick alluded to, the Gun Brothers, they want out of Minnesota. Okay, so And Nick had kind of touched on it before. They actually were the Oakland Seals owners. Then moved to the Cleveland Barons and then obviously took control of the North Stars. So they want to go back to San Francisco. So that's kind of the irony of the situation is all of a sudden now it's like we want to go back. But how, let's back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Howard Baldwin and Morris Bellsberg, they want to expand into the NHL and they want San Jose. They want the – or the San Francisco. San Bay Area. The Bay Area. Yeah. The San Francisco market basically. So the guns to preempt this are like we're relocating to Oakland. We're going back to Oakland because it worked the first time, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it says this would give them territorial rights at this point, right? So now the NHL is in this weird spot because they want to use the Bay Area as an expansion site. And they've put like quite a high fee on it. They've put an arbitrary number of $50 million. That's kind of where they decided. And because they feel the popularity coming, that's what their baseline is. So... They want to. They debate doing a relocation fee for the guns at fifty million dollars, but then they're worried about a lawsuit because no teams had to pay that. Remember um, the Canucks, <laughs> right? Exactly. So Baldwin's a little surprised by this fifty million dollar price tag as well. So even though him and uh, Bellsberg want to go in there, they're a little hesitant. So Norm Green comes in. He's part owner of, of the Calgary Flames at this moment. <laughs> he he has a plan. He says, We're going to hear his name again, by the yes. way. Mm-hmm. So he wants the guns to sell the North Stars to Baldwin and Bellsberg for $30 million. And then the guns would just pay a $20 million expansion fee to essentially get the territorial rights of like the Bay Area, basically. They get San Jose, San Francisco area, 20 mil. Norm Green, though, because he came up with this plan, he wants a cut of Minnesota. So... Uh, but then, which they end up agreeing to this, but now the guns say, well, I want, we want some of our players too, or some of our players from that organization. So they Bald- claim 24 players off of the North Stars roster. Yes. So I'll, we'll go into that after, but it ends up being four NHLers and then all the rest were either draftees IHL or like or, IHL. Yeah. I think there's, there's a crazy name, a Michigan team. It's like the Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. There you go. Kalamazoo Blazers. There you go. Yeah. So they end up getting it. So then Baldwin is eventually awarded the franchise in the San Francisco area for $50 million, and then they flip with the Gunn brothers and the $20 million that is now. So when the Gunn sold the North Stars for $30 million, he flipped it with uh, Baldwin, and then they just basically had to pay $20 million, the Gunns, mm-hmm. for that area. And through all this, even though Bald- uh, Baldwin and Bellsberg, of course, wanted a franchise and they got Minnesota, well, now Norm Green's got his hands in there. 
And Norm Green actually eventually becomes the majority owner. He's going to finagle his way. Of the North Stars. We'll get to that in yeah. the later 90s. That's so, but, why we're going to hear Norm Green But again. that's why it's kind of funny. So in the end... As Minnesotans will later call him Norm Greed. Yes, exactly. So in the end, Baldwin and Bellsburg don't even get a franchise. And the guns get to San Jose. And mm-hmm. that's where... And then, yeah, Norm Green also ultimately gets the North Stars. So, yeah. then, so then we have 91 expansion with San Jose. So, yeah. So then... So they pay the fee. Uh, they claim 24 players off the North Stars roster. This would lead to the North Stars participating in the 1991 expansion draft, becoming yep. the first and only active team to do so. Yes. So um, it's like a cross-pollination plan, and, basically. And, uh, you know, something to keep in mind here, the North Stars had just come off a Stanley Cup final appearance the year before. Yes. Led by Coach Bob Ganey, losing to the Penguins in six games. And now they're basically their roster is being pilfered. And by the late 90s, they're going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, with each of these expansion drafts, we're going to talk about Oilers, how it relates to the Oilers. Um, and who did the Oilers lose in, the, in these expansion drafts? Um, the Oilers would lose Charlie Huddy. To the North Stars. To the North Stars. Um, he would then be traded, though, along with Randy Gilhine and Tim Tom- Jim Thompson and a fourth rounder, which would become Alexei Zitnik. In 1990, or the fourth round in 1991, which become Alexei Zitnik, to L.A. for Todd Elik, or Elik. And you say, whoa, four assets for one player? Who is this legend who I've never heard about? Well, let me tell you. The year before when he played for the Kings, he played in 74 games, scored 21 goals Ooh. with 58 points. Definitely a guy you need to trade four <laughs> assets for. Wow. Um, when he goes over the North Stars, he plays 62 games, scores 14 goals Ooh. with 125 penalty minutes, averaging two penalties a game. Well, there we go. Um, and then he, the next year for the North Stars, he scores 13 goals in 46 games. And then guess what? He gets traded to the Oilers. <laughs> 18 games played, one goal, nine assists oh, no. over one and a half seasons before he's placed on waivers and claimed by... The Sharks! <laughs> 66 points in 75 games. The brother never left the system of this of this 91 expansion draft. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> um, the Sharks would select Pat Falloon with their first ever pick as a franchise second overall. That was the year where Lindros went first. Scott Niedermeyer went third. Peter Forsberg, Forsberg went sixth. Alexei Kovalev went 15th. Marcus Naslin went 16th. To Pittsburgh. I didn't know Pittsburgh mm-hmm. had drafted Naslin. So let's just say the Sharks... Maybe missed. Maybe yeah. missed on that tough one. one. Yeah. Um, they would go 17, 58, and 5 for a total of 34 points in their first season. The worst in NHL. Uh, but they wouldn't even get the first overall pick the following season because it was promised to one of the new expansion teams, Tampa Bay Lightning, who we'll get to. But first, 1992 is also important because we had the 10 day strike. Um, so again, Eagleson had resigned in December of 1991. Goodnow was named his successor January 1st, 1992, uh, and immediately began negotiating with NHL president John Ziegler on a new CBA, which had actually expired before the start of the season. So they were playing under an invalid CBA. Um, Goodnow would then lead the players on a 10-day strike from April 1st to the 10th, threatening the playoffs. So it was right before the playoffs. So very similar to what the... Uh, uh, 
MLB yeah. union will do in the later ni- in the mid nineties, yeah, right? And they do it because uh, player salaries are not paid in the playoffs. So that's what they're fighting for. So the main issue is players sought better playoff bonuses because at the time players were awarded three thousand dollars, as low as three three thousand dollars if they were a team being eliminated in the first round, uh, and earning up to twenty five thousand bonus if they won the Stanley Cup. While owners were making up to five hundred thousand dollars per playoff game, <laughs> uh, as gate prices rose, concession and merchandises spike, all, all that sort of things. Um, the owners, on the other hand, so the players were wanting more of a cut of that. While the owners, they wanted a greater share from the sixteen million dollar revenue that the NHL was seeing each year from trading cards. This is this will become a theme. Don't worry. <laughs> Looking um, in the wrong place for money, naturally. Yeah, like the, you're already making a hand over fist, and you're trying to take it from the players' association that you just screwed for the last. Right. <laughs> anyway, sorry. The strike <laughs> ended. Uh, the players agreed to an increase in regular season schedule from 80 games to 84. Each team playing two neutral zone sites with the purpose of uh, testing the waters for future expansion markets. Um, the deal that they signed the CBA was two years, but it was retroactive to the start of 91-92. So the owners could lock the players out in 93-94 if they wish to. And guess where we're headed? Um, <laughs> All the while, yeah, like you said, expansions just flying around the players, in this time. The too. players did receive an increase in playoff bonuses as well as better arbitration and free agency rights. Um, though the players gained some leverage and rights through the strike, uh, this would draw a hard line in the sand that would create animosity, animosity between the union and the owners moving forward. And again, we all know where this heads, especially in the mid-2000s. All right, back to expansion stories, though. 92-93 season, we see the introduction of the Ottawa Senators and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, they were chosen as the next expansion teams, again, strictly based on the fact that the two ownership groups were willing to pay the $50 million Expansion fee up up front. That was literally the only reason. And these because these groups were tenuous at best. Yes. Ottawa's their ownership group is led by a name by a man by the name of Bruce Firestone, who actually had a grand vision to build an extensive sports district called West Terrace in Canada, Ontario. So a little ahead of his time, actually, because yes. that's definitely the main focus now. Yeah. Uh, Neil and I talked a little bit about this yesterday when we were meeting for notes. Yes, we actually do meet before these things every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. And. It's definitely something that Edmonton's doing. Kate's is doing with the Ice District, yeah. just buying that's up as every, much. That's what every sports team uh, The one I brought up, too, I know Fenway, that's a big thing that they did years ago when they redid Fenway Park is in Boston. They bought up like a two-block radius around the, the ballpark or something, and everything that's owned. In there. Like, restaurants, bars, places that are selling merchandise, everything is owned by the team. So yeah. definitely this Firestone guy was um, ahead of his time, but West Terrace won't be built. In, instead, he'll just build the arena. Which again, building in Canada, Ontario, which right now is an issue for the Senators because yes. it's so far out of the downtown core. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real, the real one that is tenuous at best is in Tampa Bay. Um, future Carolina Carolina Hurricanes owner Pete Caramanos and former goaltender Jim Rutherford were one of the two ownership groups who sought an expansion team in Florida and thought they were more financially stable. But wait for it, the Angel chose the group led by players Phil and Tony Esposito because they were backed by Chinese golf course and resort owners Kokose Green because they were willing to pay the $50, 50 million, million expansion fee. Literally, that's all they're looking for at this point. So the yeah. so the, the Caramanos and Rutherford group w- did have more of stability, but they just they, they were reluctant to pay that $50 million fee. Yeah. Um, Takashi 
Okobu was the principal financer, uh, but he kept operating costs low and was never seen by anyone in the NHL until the 1998 season. <laughs> Almost a decade. When the team was in debt, paying costs through loans and attempting to sell. Um, I think a main thing to talk about, too, though, is that these 90s expansion teams are basically set up to fail. A these lot of two the time. especially. These ones even more than Anaheim and Florida after them. But these two really get a raw deal. Because for the 1992 expansion draft, teams were allowed to protect two goaltenders and 14 <laughs> roster players. So pretty much your whole team. Having to expose at least one goaltender who had played at least one NHL game. This meant that some teams, and actually, you know, you want to talk about uh, a guy who... I yeah. actually mentioned him, David Poli, a strategy he had. Yeah, so David Poyle at this point oh, Poyle, was, sorry, yeah. yeah, he was the uh, general manager for I always the, say Poli for yeah. some reason. <laughs> he was the general manager for the Washington Capitals, and he essentially tries to sign, re-sign actually, a goaltender that was on their team in the 70s, and he is now 40 years old at this point, to play one game, because then they could expose him and not another goaltender on their roster. And Chicago does something similar. They signed the goaltender for the U.S. Olympic team in 1992 in order not to expose Belfort or Dominic Hashing mm-hmm. at this time. So already you can see general managers figuring loopholes, which will be a common theme throughout all the NHL mm-hmm. all the time. It's always the one idiot rule. <laughs> so um, ultimately, David Poyle did not sign the 40-year-old goaltender. He, I believe he signed a goalie by the name of Steve Weeks. Mm. And just exposed him, played one game or whatever. So this was kind of their way around it. So not only were they already screwed from the jump, but then teams were finding out ways to make sure that they basically gave up now. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, during the 1992 expansion draft, the Senders' laptop crashed. And without any paper copies of their draft plan, they s- started calling out several ineligible players. Uh, <laughs> Ottawa and Tampa Bay would then alternate draft positions with the Senders going first. So they selected gold. Goaltenders first, then defensemen, then forwards. So they went two goaltenders each, yeah. seven defensemen each, 12 forwards each. Oilers? Would lose. Oh, Anatoly Semenov to mm. Tampa Bay and Mark Lamb to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. So, again, when we talk about you're able to protect 14 players, <laughs> all you're going to have left is guys that are barely making your roster, really, right? So uh, The Lightning would select Roman Hammerlick first overall. Which is pretty good. I mean, overall, they, for the expan- truthfully, for an expansion draft that they were set up to fail, they had an okay draft. Uh, yeah, the Senators would draft Alexei Ashen second overall. Yeah. And the Sharks, you remember, had the awful year the year before. They got to dra- draft third. They took Mike Rathje. Remember that name? Remember Mike Rathje? I, I saw that and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember That's Mike Rathje. That's a tough one, yeah. Uh, the Lightning would go 23, 54, and 7, 53 points in their inaugural season, while the Senators would win their first game of the season, but would not win again until the 25th of November. Oh and they would go yeah, 3 and 24 down the stretch, finishing 10, 70, and 4, 24 points, beating out the Sharks for the rights to draft Alexander Dagg the next year. Yeah, Ottawa had like. We, they were the modern day Oilers at that point. Like they were the, or they were the '90s version of the Oilers, where they had like four first overall picks. Well, talking about talking about the modern day Oilers, after Firestone, Bruce Firestone made some off the record comments that the Senators had lost intentionally, aka tanked to draft egg the NHL institutes the draft lottery the following season. <laughs> oh, Mister Firestone. So, Neil, let's go back and talk to her about our friends Howard Baldwin, uh, Morris Belzerg, and the Gun Brothers. The, the Gun Brothers. So, this is the same year that Minnesota now was going to become the Dallas Stars um, for the next season. So, in the off season, the 93 offseason, 
Um, or sorry, Norm Green in this point with the other two guys. Yep. Baldwin and... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they eventually, I just have it here that they, uh, Norm Green would assume full control by 1992. I don't really know the exact details. It was basically just like court court lawsuits, mm-hmm. essentially. He was able to basically grease his way through the system to uh, get control. So, for the 1991-92 season, uh, the North Stars switched from green road sweaters to black and simp- and changed their logo that simply said stars across it. So they were already rebranding, getting rid of the North Stars um, moniker. Um, Green citing low attendance, failure to secure a new arena, and a sexual harassment lawsuit that led to Green's wife threatening to leave him unless he moved the team. Yep. Wives have some good pull. Green had also refused to lease the Target Center where the Timberwolves played as Coca-Cola had advertising and pouring rights. And the North Stars and the Met Center were sponsored with Pepsi. Oh, my God. Of course. Yeah. So, Green was keen on moving the team to become the L.A. Stars. Yes. Playing out of what would be the Arrowhead Pond of Anaheim. He wanted Anaheim. But the NHL was already in negotiations with the Walt Disney Company to grant them an expansion team. So, instead, they allowed Green to move the team wherever he wanted. He would eventually choose... Dallas. Dallas Stars. So he announced on the 10th of March, 1993, that the team would be relocating to Dallas to begin play of the 93-94 season. Uh, and as we pick up on that Anaheim, or Anaheim Disney deal, the following season, 93-94, we'll see the introduction of the Florida Panthers and the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. So again, expansion fee set at $50 million. NHL is looking for corporate specifically corporate owners. They wanted Disney bad here too. And another big conglomerate, in fact. Yeah, we'll get to them after. Uh, Okay, you want to talk about Anaheim first? Let's talk about Anaheim Okay, you do Anaheim then. Okay, so, yeah, Bruce McNall, uh, at this point, is obviously principal, majority owner of the LA Kings, Mm -hmm. and is also the head of the Board of Governors. So he represents all the owners, essentially. He is their representative. Um, He knew Disney's Michael Eisner, uh, mm-hmm. Like socially, obviously living in LA, I would mm-hmm. assume um, Disney obviously sees the market for hockey after the massive success of their movies, The Mighty Ducks, um, and so they told the NHL that we'll come, but you got to waive our expansion fee, which like the NHL essentially they want Disney essentially does, which so Disney gets some good preferential treatment in the end. Um, so they fast track the process here, right? So Disney like. Kind of gets on board, and like Nick said, by 93-94, they're already in the league. Yeah, because Green's already negotiated with this new arena. So the yes. arena's already set up, which is usually the big stumbling block for some of these yes. teams to build an NHL-ready arena. Yeah, yeah, and so they're preempting to Norm Green's attempt to move the Stars to Anaheim mm-hmm. at this point. So Green had offered a $25 million indemnification fee to uh, Bruce McNall. So then Disney now has to match that to make it look kind of legitimate i guess in this case right so um essentially that bruce mcnall is able to get a 25 million dollar fee from the anaheim mighty ducks and they only pay 25 million dollar expansion so how things have not changed since the 60s (laughs) and or yeah the 60s with the original six and corruption amongst the rich owners exactly yeah so, um, and then, yeah, Green is essentially, because this happens, though, Green is essentially promised, correct, that he can relocate it anywhere, and that's why he does the mm-hmm. Dallas, Dallas move. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how we get the Ducks. That's how we get the um, Ducks. And everything's basically. based off the, the first two movies, essentially, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So as far as Florida goes, though, 
uh, Wayne Huzenga, <laughs> chairman of Blockbuster Entertainment, was approached by the league. This is so 90s. It's to buy insane. a franchise for the Miami Arena. Yeah. So they were actually chosen again because they corporate sponsor their corporate ownership. Someone willing to pay the 50 million fee. They chose Blockbuster over the ownership group who owned the Miami Heat, but that group. Was where they were the main tenants of the Miami Arena, where this new Florida team would be end where would end up playing. So, what would become the Florida Panthers, even though they paid the fifty million dollar fee and they got in there and they were playing out of that arena, they were excluded from all advertising and luxury box revenues. So again, the NHL in their pursuit for corporate sponsor or rich corporate owners. Basically set these teams up to fail a lot of the time. So you wonder why these teams are constantly in financial trouble. Well, the Florida Panthers didn't make any money off luxury box and advertising where you make all your money as a team. Yeah. So, again, set up to fail. So um, even though they were – but they were also guaranteed that – that's the irony that they would be competitive. Mm-hmm. That's why the, these teams ended up coming in because they were told that it would – they would allow to be competitive. But they were not, of course. Florida and Anaheim specifically. Okay. So. So now we're going to go to the expansion draft here. Now, remember when I mentioned the Gretzky trade, I mentioned that ninety nine, that 1991 first-round pick that ends up being Martin Roshinsky. So Oilers draft Martin Roshinsky in that, in that 99 draft. He only ends up playing two games for the Oilers. He gets traded to the Quebec Nordiques on the 10th of March, 1992 for Ron Tugnet and Brad Zavincha. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because in the 1993 expansion draft, the Oilers would lose Tugnut. To the Mighty Ducks. So if you're wondering how Ron Tugner got on the team, follow up from the Gretzky trade. <laughs> um, along with... Scott Mellonby for, the the for the Florida Panthers. Who ends yeah. up becoming famous during the cup run for the rat trick. Killing yes. the rat in the dressing room. He becomes a Panthers legend, essentially. Yeah, basically. Um, Mellonby had been acquired in a deal from the Flyers. Along with Craig Fisher and Craig Berube. For Corey Foster, Dave Brown, and Yari Curry. On the 30th of May, 1991, if you're wondering, Curry played with the Flyers? Well, on that same day, Curry would be, Curry would be traded to the Kings. Nice. So, a That's lot of still Oilers follow. Yeah. Gretzky, uh, 80s Oilers followed here, yeah. affecting the Oilers here. Do you want to touch on Phase 2 of the expansion draft during this year? No, you go ahead. Okay, so Phase 2 of this was that Ottawa, San Jose, and Tampa Bay were essentially allowed to now choose players off of the Anaheim and Florida teams because they had just come in as well. So they were allowed. And for the most part, teams passed. Like Tampa passed, ironically, Tampa passed on both their picks. Mm. Um, the other two, it was it was actually all goalies selected. It wasn't anything mm. major. But the one funny thing that falls out from this is Glenn Healy is selected in the second phase as Your well. Buddy. So Glenn Healy goes from the Islanders... To Anaheim in the expansion draft, to Tampa Bay in phase two of the expansion draft, to the New York Rangers all on the same day. He gets trade gets traded to the Rangers. Yes, so he went from <laughs> Islanders to Anaheim to Tampa from to New the York Rangers and back again. Yes, literally from, from the Islanders to, to across the road, all within the same day. So he got taken in the expansion draft by the Anaheim Ducks as their goalie. Tampa Bay then steals him in the phase two of the draft, and then the Ra- and then they trade it to the Rangers for I believe like a third round pick in the same day. So, kind of like a weird little phase That's, two thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> now we head into the NHL entry draft. As we mentioned before, the Sanders finish last. They get the right to draft Alexander Dagg, which well, they do. Do you want to say the quote, Nick? Of course I do. 
which Dag was happy about being drafted first of all because he was quoted as saying, no one remembers number two. two. Neil, who did the Whalers draft at number two? The Whalers selected Chris Pronger. <laughs> Hall of Fame defenseman. The Brian Light- Burke. The Lightning end up drafting with their first ever pick, Chris Gratton, third overall. The Mighty Ducks of Anaheim draft. Oh, they draft uh, Rob... No. Nope. No, Paul nope. Korea. Sorry. Paul, Paul Korea. Korea. My bad. Sorry. The Panthers draft Rob Niedermeyer, Rob fifth Niedermeyer. overall. Yes, sorry. Um, the Mighty Ducks would go 33, 46, and 7 for 71 points in their first season, actually finishing ninth in the Western Conference. Pretty good, yeah. And Paul Korea's, that's a good pick. Damn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Panthers would go 33, 34, and 7 for 84 points, only missing the playoffs by one point, largely due to John Van Beesbrook, the goalie they claimed in the expansion draft yeah. from the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, he got injured during their stretch drive. He was amazing for them that first year. Um, and they set a then record for an expansion team in its inaugural season. Obviously broken later by the Vegas Golden Knights. Another important year, a reason why 93 is important. Uh, on the 1st of February, 1993, Gary Bettman replaces Gil Stein as NHL president, becoming the first ever NHL commissioner. That's going to lead right into the 1994-95 lockout. Yes. Because now, all of a sudden, Bettman's been brought in. So the 93-94 season was played without a valid CBA. So, again, that was the year that the owners had could have chosen to lock the players out if they chose to. They didn't. They waited till the next year. So Bettman's mandate is... What people need to remember, too, is we're going to start talking about Bettman. And a lot of time, Bettman comes up as like a villain in a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff. Bettman is acting on behalf of the owners, right? Yes. He's not acting as an independent person. He's on the owner's behalf. He was brought in with a mandate to do four things. Aggressive expansion, a new American TV deal, uh, a focus Which coincide in some capacity. Right? Yeah, a focus on growth, particularly in the United States, and lasting labor, labor peace. Those were his mandates as representative of the owners. So, considering that mandate, the owners via Bettman believe the only way to do this was the implicate implementation of a salary, a salary cap. cap. Um, and they, they had tr- trust in him because he had worked under David Stern in with, the NBA. Yes. Who had he was a vice president of the NBA. NBA, and they had a uh, have had a salary cap sort of system. Soft cap, they Soft call it. Soft cap, yeah. but they had had at least a system in place. Yeah. So they felt that his experience in dealing with a salary cap would be beneficial. So players rejected the impl- imp- uh, implementation of a salary cap. So the owners counter with a luxury tax on salaries. <laughs> Not on not on team payroll, on salary. So if a player is signed beyond a certain certain threshold, they pay a luxury tax. Uh, the players suggested revenue sharing instead. <laughs> a common theme that you'll hear. That's the first time you said that. Both sides do though want to protect small, struggling small market teams. Um, the owners want to do it by tying salaries to revenue as a means to subsidize the smaller teams, while the players simply just want revenue sharing. Richer teams paying. Poor teams, which essentially is what the MLB does, correct? Correct. Which, if you're wondering why you're sitting in an MLB arena or you're watching an MLB game and in there's, Florida and there's a thousand people there, it's it's revenue sharing. Yeah. So the Yankees are paying into a luxury tax and they're subsidizing yes. these smaller teams. Yeah. Yeah. They're the what basically the MLB does it differently than the other leagues is that they don't have a salary cap, but they have a luxury tax. So when you pay too much money, teams like the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox essentially subsidize the teams that have a payroll of twenty million dollars. Yeah. Um, there are other issues such as rookie contracts, changes to the arbitration system, changing free agency. Um, eventually, large market teams such as Toronto, Montreal, New York, Dallas, Philadelphia broke with the league. 
not wanting to become the first North American sports league to lose an entire season. So actually the big market teams are the kind of buckle. Um, So that's why the season does begin on the 11th of January, 1995. They play the condensed 48 game schedule. Uh, Ending on the 3rd of May, the only time the NHL's regular season has ended in May, actually. Mm-hmm. So later in 2013, when they do the shortened season, they just compress the schedule. Yeah. That's why it still ends in April. Okay. Late April. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, not that a lot is gained from this because there's no no salary cap gets implemented. Mm-hmm. None of the major changes that we'll see uh, in the mid-2000s happens. Stuff, a lot of but the talking. lockout would cause further resentment between the owners and the union. And that's the most important part because, you know, good now is not going to get off. He's his, hard, hard yeah. line, yeah. Well, and like what I was going to say, that that does circle back to Eagleson, though, because mm-hmm. with him in as executive director of the PA, they made no strides. Because he was in with the because owners. Because he was in with the owners. And so now when you're, some of the stuff you just listed there about how there's all these different things that they're trying to tackle in the CBA, like no wonder they're there was catching almost... Up. Yeah, they are. They're, they're playing catch-up. A lot of the stuff that we as fans now know to be about sort of how the league functions is from the 90s. It's mm-hmm. not even from any time earlier than that. So mm-hmm. they, they had one of... Unfortunately, they had one of the weakest unions... Because of the direction that Eagleson. they went, yeah. So, and the owners in this case are in a really strong position, and they kind of flex their so, muscles the rest of the way. Yeah, and this is going to go back to the McNall thing we talked about. So, with the Gretzky thing, with with him raising Gretzky's salary, and now all of a sudden with Eagleson out, now all salaries are disclosed. Everyone yes. knows how much each other is making. It starts spiking salaries because now you have guys like I don't know uh, Mario Lemieux even who could be yeah. like, I may not be good as Gretzky, but I'm almost as good yeah, as Gretzky. Two point seven five million. Yeah, yeah. Brett Hall. Uh, you know Jeremy Roenick players mm-hmm. like this so again owners because they want to just have the best players they think possible they start spending those salaries salaries start rising they start to spiral way up way up spike way up that they, they can't keep you know keep up with all of a sudden they think the league is losing money so now this is why they want to start capping salaries why they want to start tying players salaries and the cap to revenue so basically it's always stays in conjunction with as long as the league's making money everyone else can start making money and that's what we have now with the salary cap where it keeps rising it it rises in conjunction with how much money the league is making yeah but we'll get to all that um so after the 95 season the uh the devils end up winning the cup that year um instead of not just with more expansion which is going to happen in the late 90s now we're going to have relocations so actually w if you remember the four WHA teams that enter in 79, the Oilers, the Jets, the Nordiques, and the Whalers, they're actually going to all end up leaving almost within a four-year span. And I'll say almost because the Oilers almost do leave as well. Um, So even though the owners and the union had tried to implement a system to protect the struggling small market teams, nothing was done. And actually with the loss of home games because of the shortened season in 94, they just lose too much money. So they have to end up relocating. Um, so ultimately face their fate, sale and relocation. Um, over the course of the next four years, nearly each WHA merger team will move. Uh, in 1995, it'll be the Quebec Nordiques. So they, uh, and you know, for the, the, the Nordiques, the Jets, and almost the Oilers, a big reason here is the, the low Canadian dollar. Competing with higher salaries, trying to compete with the richer Canadian or er, yeah. American teams like the the Flyers, the Rangers, even the Stars by this point because mm-hmm. they do have a rich owner in a bigger market. You have a lockout, which obviously yeah. Um, so Quebec will be the first um, lack, of, and again a lack of provincial support is going to be a big issue here too. And that was actually an issue, like I said, with that um, 
Norm Green cited moving the stars as he wasn't getting any uh, support municipally, so he moved the team. So lack of provincial support to help subsidize the team. Uh, Marcel Abo was forced to sell the team to investors in Denver. Uh, <laughs> the thing that hurts the most is so this would happen in the fall or the summer of '95. The Nordiques moved to to Colorado to play the '95-'96 season. They win the cup in '96, their first year their in Colorado. Team was so good, yeah. Uh, again, a big fallout being we talked about, we mentioned it briefly, but Eric Lindros being drafted first overall, refusing to play for the Nordiques. They end up basically getting a godfather offer from the Flyers for him, which yeah. ends up drafting Peter Forsberg. Uh, they get Sackick in the deal, don't they? No, they Sackett's have Sackett's already Sackett's there. already there. They get, they get Forsberg. They get a couple picks. That yeah, basically, they have Matt Sundin at this point. Like, yeah. They're stacked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. The next year... 96, the Winnipeg Jets move. Um, same reasons for the Nordiques. They move to Phoenix to become the Coyotes. Uh, 97, so we talk, we mentioned Peter uh, Karamanos, who had tried to purchase that Florida team. Um, he would actually end up purchasing the Whalers in 94 and committed to four more years in Hartford, but by 1997, low attendance, lack of local corporate uh, and government support. Karamanos moves the team to Raleigh to become the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, and then in 1998, with Pocklington in dire straits, the Oilers struggling to compete with the larger markets. The team was up for sale and nearly purchased by Houston Rockets owner Les Alexander. But this deal would be matched by a group of 37 local investors, who those of us in Edmonton know, known as the uh, EIG, the Edmonton Investors Group. Uh, they were local owners that kept the team in Edmonton. Um, and, you know, as much as people, again, want to trash Batman a little bit for maybe lack of sympathy or care towards Canadian teams, they would always err on the side of local investors. They always would, even when it was with the North stars or any of these other teams that moved, they did first look for richer local investors to keep the team from relocating, but Mm -hmm. just wasn't the case. Edmonton luckily was able to do so. It's Um, because the, it's quickly like that. They allow the NHL allowed uh, teams like that to have like stock offerings where Mm -hmm. like multiple owners, as long as there was one principal owner. Right. Yeah, so that's why there was able to be an investment group that could own the team, but it still had to have like one guy basically owning fifty one percent. Now, less less Alexander, um, he'll sell the Rockets, but the, and we're going to get to Houston. But a big thing with Houston is that they play out of the Toyota Center, and the Rockets owner also owns the Toyota Center. And there's a rule in place that nobody can play out of the Toyota Center unless. The Rockets ownership group owns that NHL franchise, so that why that's why it was a big thing that this guy was willing to buy the team because it would have put Houston in a decent position. And if you remember when we talked about the WHA, the Houston Arrows, where Gordie Howe played, was actually one of the more viable teams for mm-hmm. the WHA. And the only reason why Houston didn't merge with the NHL is because again, John Ziegler wasn't keen on having teams in the Sun Belt. Yeah. Okay, so that's a lot of movement. So with all the uh, relocation, all of a sudden we're back to expansion. Yep. 1998, Nashville Predators. Um, even amongst the disarray of strikes, lockouts, relocations, NHL continued to its aggressive expansion plans, moving next into Tennessee. Uh, there were talks actually back in 95 that the Devils would relocate to Tennessee to play in a new arena. Uh, also getting a $20 million relocation bonus. Yeah. Um, but they were, but they restructured their lease with the Meadowlands and stayed in New Jersey. Um, they won the cup too, so that would have. They were a very good team, yeah. So Craig Leopold, 
It's granted a fr uh, conditional franchise in January of 1997 on the provision that they could sell 12,000 season tickets and have their new arena built in time for the 98-99 season. Um, they do that, and again, there are actually some rumors that during the Oilers sale, they would be moved to Tennessee, and Leopold would be granted the expansion team in Houston, but that doesn't end up happening. The Oilers stay in Edmonton. We all know about that. So we get the Predators. Um, in the 1998 expansion draft, the Oilers lose. They lose Doug Friedman. Mm -hmm. Which, like, whatever. Yeah. Similar rules to before. Lots of players getting protected by teams. So there's it's slim pickings, man. Um, the Predators also claim Mikhail Shlatanov from the Mighty Ducks, who would then be traded along with Jim Dowd to Edmonton in exchange for Eric Fischode, Drake Barahowski, and Greg DeVries. Okay. It's another Oilers-related thing there. The 98 expansion dra or entry draft, the Predators would select. David Legwand. With their first ever pick, second overall. Um, they for, would later... First overall was Le Cavalier, correct? Yes, yeah. it was, yeah. Tampa had been guaranteed. That's That was another thing with these expansion teams. They were they never... guaranteed top picks. Top picks, but they were not guaranteed first pick, yes. basically. Um, they were purchased later by Jim Balsili, who had threatened to move them to Hamilton. Um, but then later purchased by a by man of the name by the name of William Boots Del Baggio the Third, who at one time threatened to move the team to Kansas City, Missouri, but would end up investing with other people in Nashville and keeping them there. And mm -hmm. Nashville actually you can consider one of the better successes of this expansion. Mm -hmm. Um because the next team, not so much. Well, sorry, quickly. Yeah, hey, of course. Yeah, uh they make seven trades before the expansion. Oh, right, draft, yeah, you want to talk about this. And they make eight post draft moves as well. So this is something that we'll kind of see from now on. Like this, the Vegas, I would say, use this blueprint just as well. Side deals. The, and all yeah, that the other stuff. teams don't. They make a couple moves, and there's a couple funny ones that we'll talk about with Minnesota and Columbus. But Nashville really goes hard, and mm -hmm. of course, David Poyle is now the general manager from the beginning of Nashville. He is still the general manager in Nashville. I believe he's the longest tenured yeah. general manager. I would say, yeah, yeah. I mean, sounds, from '98 right. to now, it's almost over 20 years. Mm -hmm. So. But he he really sets that blueprint. Like he would he would draft some guys in the expansion draft that he knew wouldn't sign because they were UFAs literally days after the draft. But he'd get a comp compensation pick in the next draft for that. So he used it to get a lot of draft picks, really pool up his team. And Nashville, I would say, is, was competitive relatively quickly mm -hmm. compared to like a Tampa. Because at this point, it's still Tampa drafting first. Ottawa's had Chris Phillips get drafted, Brian Burrard yeah. at this point. They've already drafted Alexi Ash and like three first overall picks. So they've really struggled. Those two franchises. And Nashville really gets into the playoffs pretty quickly. Florida has, a, like you said, they're a good success early. Yeah. But they a lot of that finals, is yeah. yeah, dead puck era kind of thing. They yeah. do some defensive things. But then all of a sudden they start crashing again, right? So, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Okay, uh, yeah, next year, 1999, Atlanta Thrashers. <laughs> almost at the Atlanta Flames. I almost did. <laughs> Though a controversial decision as the Flames had failed in Atlanta, Uncle Ted Turner and Time Warner Inc. were granted a franchise in June of 1997. So again, those rich corporate owners, Ted Turner, just living high. The Monday Night Wars are are in full force. Yeah, WCW's kicking WWF's ass right now in '97. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's living high. He's he's high in the entertainment business. Um, not much to say other than during the 1999 NHL expansion draft, though there's lose captain Kelly Buckberger yeah. to the Thrashers. But 99, the 99 entry draft would not be so kind to the Thrashers. Ooh. 
So the Thrashers going to the draft held the second overall pick. Again, guaranteed the second overall pick here. Um, But the Vancouver Canucks GM, Brian Burke, was was determined to draft both Daniel and Henrik Sedin after seeing them play at the World Championship together. He wanted them on the same team. The Sedins had made it clear they wanted to go to a team that would have them play together. So the Canucks held the third overall pick. Burke trades defenseman Brian McCabe and his first-round pick next year in the 2000 draft for Chicago's fourth overall pick in 99. So they now own three and four. Three and four, exactly. On the day of the draft, Burke then flips Chicago's pick and two third-round picks to Tampa Bay to get the first overall pick. So he has one in three. He then makes a deal with Don Waddell, who's the Thrasher's GM, to swap one and two. That will give the Canucks two and three and the Thrasher's number one. As long as the Thrashers agreed to select Patrick Steffen first overall, leaving both Sedin's to Vancouver at second and third, which they do. That's some good work by Brian Burke, let's be honest. Patrick Steffen, probably best known here for missing that empty net, having Ray Ferraro, who had been his captain, rip him apart. Rip him apart. That is disgraceful. That is embarrassing. Alish Hems, or uh, what is it? Uh, Bergeron to Hemsky. No, Bergeron to Smith to Hemsky scores with like two seconds left. Yeah. Send the game to overtime against the Stars. We lose anyway. We lose anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we Ray lost in a shootout. just oh, angry man. Yeah. Patrick Stafford. Uh, the Lightning, who had that fourth overall pick after all that, they trade that to the Rangers, who would draft Pavel Brendel, who was also highly touted. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind, too, is that these Brendel, Stefan, some other guys in this draft were highly touted. Afterwards, it turned out it was ended up being a weaker draft than they anticipated. Mm-hmm. But Atlanta makes they make six deals pre and then seven post draft. Oh. So that's pretty good. They they follow closely to Nashville to try and make themselves better. Than I would say Atlanta after this draft though they draft quite well. They'll do well. I was, I was just about to say that they, in the next following two drafts to do better, selecting Danny Heatley second overall in two thousand, Eli Kovalchuk first overall in two thousand one, which would be the same draft that the Oilers uh, lucky number thirteen draft the aforementioned Alash Hemsky. They also end up eventually flip for Marion Hosa as well. They have all yeah. three of those guys on one team. Yeah, Heatley for Hosa, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so Columbus Blue Jackets and the Minnesota Wild the next year, 2000. Industrialist John H. McConnell was granted a franchise in June 1997 after uh, – so in, in Columbus. Uh, he There's a city referendum that was held to, uh, as they attempted to procure municipal funds to build a new arena. The referendum failed. But the Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company announced they would privately finance a new arena, which is why it's called the Nationwide Arena. Uh, Still to this day. I mm-hmm. On the 25th of June, 1997, a new franchise was granted to Minnesota Hockey Ventures Group, headed by Bob Nagel Jr., and would play at the then state-of-the-art Excel Energy Center. So, yeah, not much to say other than... I, I think by this point, the NHL is still... They're not so big on just getting that NHL franchise... Or that expansion fee, they're just wanting to expand further yeah. in the states. Yeah, they they never wanted to leave Minnesota. They finally find they, they do look at it as a as a a good hockey market, a traditional yeah. hockey and market. Minnesota has been good since expansion, yeah. really. Um, so the 2000, uh, 2000 expansion draft, who do the Oilers lose? They lose Jim Dowd from Minnesota, which, as I mentioned, they got in that trade. Yeah. Yep. And Burt Robertson to Columbus. Yes, defenseman yeah. Burt Robertson. Burt Robertson. I just love these players. When I, I was looking these up, I was Fuck, like, oh my, more, 
No wonder these teams were just not. At the 2000 entry draft, uh, the Wilds select Gabrick, Marion Gabrick, third overall, Very their first pick. overall pick. It's a good pick when he's healthy. The Blackicks, the Blackicks, the Blue Jackets <laughs> Blue- select. Rough. Rostislav. Rostislav Kleslav, fourth overall. Way to be Doug McLean. Yeah, that's a tough one. Tough one. Um, There were some goalies that got protected before the draft Mm. that were of intrigue, if if people are curious. Like Dominic Hasek, uh, Columbus made a trade with um, Buffalo to not select Dominic Hasek. He was exposed? No, he couldn't be exposed. Yeah, he was exposed, yes. Weird. Yeah. It, there was something along the lines. Again, I, I don't remember the rules exactly, but they wanted to. They could only do one goalie, and they had Martin Biron. That's what it was. So they want. They thought right. Biron was going to be like the future. So they oh, wanted okay. to protect both of them. And then San Jose, I believe, had two goalies. I think as well. Rolson was on their and roster at the time. Hold too. on, this is my story. And then oh. Nabokov was another goalie that was protected with a trade to Saint uh, San Jose. Dwayne Rollison mm. signs in the AHL instead of going to Columbus because he doesn't want to play for the Blue Jackets. But he, ends up going to Minnesota. Yeah. Eventually. May, eventually. But he gets he gets picked wow. in the expansion draft by Columbus and instead signs with the AHL, I believe it was the Arrows, Wow. to not play for Columbus. <laughs> which, like, he's kind of like a prickly guy, so it doesn't surprise me too yeah. much that he did that, actually. That's a very Dwayne Rollison thing to do. But so that's some oiler flair there. Yeah, that so that's fun. the wild 90s. So from 91 to 2001, yeah. there's all those teams that enter the league. Um, relocations. You think about it, and you think about the NHL kind of always considered like the smallest brother out of the big four leagues the MLB, the NBA, and the uh, NFL, obviously. You can't understand why, because as a fan, like us growing up, you know, man, I have had didn't know the extent of the Oilers almost leaving. Mm-hmm. For all I, I was just a dumb little Oilers fan with my Doug Waite jersey and my Tommy Salvo jersey. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really surprise you that like the NHL just looks bush league with all this shit going on with you know lockouts and teams moving all like this three all teams three time. teams moving consecutive years. You're you're getting these wild teams like the Predators, the Thrashers with their ridiculous jerseys. Like, yeah. it, it's not a surprise that it took so long for the NHL to actually become a little bit more popular and profitable well, because, because it, it just looks ridiculous. Like it's almost two decades until it expands again. It looks like Which to is, me, if I was, I, I, I can't blame somebody who tries to be a casual fan. Like, man, this league's fucking yeah. like, there's another new team now. Now mm-hmm. there's another expansion draft. Now there's now these shitty teams are still drafting the top five every year. Cause they can't get ahead. Like, what the fuck is going on? This Tampa Bay owner hasn't been seen for five years. <laughs> yeah. Now he's trying to sell the team again. And like, in, in this in this time too, like right in the nineties, the owners push so hard to go to the Olympics. Right. It's the owners that do it again. The- but that was that had been put in place by Eagleson. Eagleson way back when yeah, he started international play. But the owners play. are because they're doing this big expansion. Mm-hmm. They're getting all this stuff. They force the players to go ninety eight to the Olympics, Nagano, yeah. and then. X amount of time later, oh no, now we don't need the Olympics. Yeah. So it's always the owners that are making these decisions. But what, kind of putting to your point where it's like it kind of looks a little funny, it, it fickle fans, right? Mm-hmm. They, the, the NHL eventually goes after like what they call like flaneurs, what, what hardcore fans would call like flaneurs, which okay. are like they're bandwagon jumpers oh, essentially. Okay. And so they were ch- this balance between like alienation of hardcore fans versus trying to gain new ones, right? You're pandering to fans that don't know the game and you attract the flaneurs. And you're moving away from the Canadian market. Yeah, and you're moving away hardcore. from the traditional market. So that's why I think 
where we talk about like Batman maybe in that sort of or in this case the owners will say because mm-hmm. I don't think it's just Batman obviously like no, you he's, mentioned he's, he's a he's representing he's a the owners for them, yes yeah. um, that's sort of this balance where I think a lot of Canadian fans that resentment comes from this time period exactly for, sure. for that exact reason that you're they felt alienated and like you're losing franchises left right and center there's only six Canadian markets and there's like fifteen at this point now fifteen in like large markets in the U S mm-hmm. so you're starting to feel a little. Um, maybe not as appreciated as they maybe do now, I would say. But, Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of like a, a weird time in the NHL for sure, right? Um, there's a market disparity, obviously massive, as you've just alluded mm-hmm. to, that like these expansion teams are like set up for failure. But then the, still the large market is just feasting on all these teams because like, it did, of course, revenue growth, no doubt, but it's like the only the certain teams are getting it. It's so. funny, though, that like – you think of like who I mentioned as ta- as like the uh, big market teams, the Toronto's, the Montreal's, yeah. the the New York's. Like other than well, New York and Montreal, notwithstanding, but like Toronto, Vancouver, Philadelphia, like they make some finals. They don't win championships though. No, they like don't. it's not the ones that actually end up really benefiting. No. It's Dallas wins after moving. They yeah. win in ninety nine. Colorado wins. Colorado wins. New Jersey wins. New Jersey wins. <laughs> like yeah. it's teams that were good at everything else they were more efficient well it's it, it it goes to show that these teams that move the nordiques the jets because even phoenix has a little bit of success they go to a western final yeah. in the mid 90s i think or they go they make a deep run with ronick on their team one of one of those times um the ownership group because they were like hockey fans knew what they were doing they just couldn't compete and and we're going to get into this as we get into the lockout with no salary cap with salary spiking yes it's these rich owners Again, it's the one idiot rule. They're paying. We're gonna get to freaking Bobby Holik with ten million dollar contract. Yeah, like this is all from gets expansion. bought out two years yes. in. Yeah, because well, they because these rich owners are overpaying for these players. So now these smaller market owners who actually know what they're doing can't just can't compete. They're just not rich enough. Yeah. So because they, because mm. they would normally sign the Bobby Holiks exactly for you know five million dollars mm-hmm. half that price because they would see the value in Bobby Holik when maybe another team wouldn't. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it does kind of go to that sort of money ball yep. because you, when you are lower, you have to find a way to be competitive. So how did those the Floridas do it? They, they found like a John Van Brees book and then they played defense. Well, even Minnesota, they hired Jacques Lemaire as their first ever coach right? to play defense. defense. So when you talk about yeah. like dead puck era coincides with here, like the game drastically they're trying changes. Way, they're trying to find ways to compete because they can't. Yes, because they, the only way they can mm-hmm. do it is to win. To mm-hmm. win to make money, right? You need to get fans in the seats and you do that by winning first and foremost and what's the easiest way to do it well change the almost change the rules of the game right exactly it's, it's changed the way the game is played it's the dead puck it's like everybody has the block shots it's like baseball's doing right now with the shift and all that kind of stuff all right? that like stuff, you gotta, exactly it, it, it all it, it's all secular right totally so this is going to lead to the mid-2000s with what we most hockey fans will be familiar with the 2005-2006 lockout, the only time a professional sports league in North or, America. Or, or full or oh four oh five is the year. sorry yes oh five yes oh four oh five is the whole yeah. year yeah. correct correct sorry yeah, yeah right. I wrote that wrong in my that's notes okay. yeah oh six was a very big year for the Oilers. That's what I was just gonna say yeah oh five oh six man that's a we look back fondly on those times. So without revenue sharing or salary cap instituted following the ninety four lockout, owners were seeking what they called cost certainty by tethering player salaries to revenues. Which if as we just touched on, they created themselves. Owners claimed they'd been they'd been spending seventy six percent of revenues on player salaries, significantly higher than the other North American big four leagues, leading to a claim loss or a claimed collective loss of two hundred and 
73 million in the 2003-2004 or 2002-2003 season. Yeah. Again, the owners are always coming down on the players for mistakes that they've made themselves. Yes. We're, we'll, 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 we'll recap this after. But, yeah. Um, so Bettman, again, through the owners, uh, was aiming for a hard cap, claiming that a luxury tax would not accomplish cost certainty. Uh, many believe that this was a strategy to gain the support of big markets like Toronto, Montreal, Detroit, New York, Vancouver, Philadelphia by avoiding revenue sharing. Yes. Teams that had broke away from Batman during the previous lockout. Bob Goodnow refused to accept any type of salary cap, yeah. main, seeking to maintain the quote-unquote free marketplace system mm-hmm. that was in place. He, uh, he had mistrust with the league's claim of cost certainty as he viewed it as a sim- simply another form of a salary cap. Yep. His mis- mistrust was further validated after a 2004 Forbes report claimed that the league's disclosure of losses was actually half of what they claimed. Yeah. Uh, the league lacked a major U.S. national television deal. Again, same thing in 67 expansion. Mm-hmm. Forced them to rely more heavily on gate revenues than any other American leagues, meaning that low attendances, uh, yeah, low attendances were bleeding the league of money. Yeah. Uh, again, Oilers-centric. The Oilers are one of, the se- of several clubs, including the Pittsburgh Penguins and others, who are actually hoping for a lockout, claiming that a lost year would be beneficial and that they would have to fold outright if they were required to play that season. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the union had Boilers made... Boilers always just teetering. I know, hey, right? Holy smokes. The, and man, give Cates a lot of fucking credit. Yeah. Honestly, kept though. Them. Honestly. Yeah, kept them. Uh, as much as people want to complain about the structure of upper management, yeah. probably wouldn't have a team of form for him. Yeah. Uh, the union made offers as early as 2003, proposing revenue sharing, a luxury tax, and a one-time player salary rollback of 5 to 24%. <laughs> They, the players offered this. Yeah. League fucking refused because they want a hard cap. <laughs> Linked to player salaries. Yep. Uh, in a final hope of saving the season on St. Valentine's Day of 2005, the union offered to accept a $52 million salary cap with the provision it was not linked to, to league revenues. The owners countered with a $40 million salary cap with, oh, well, no, hold on, Neil, $2.5 million in benefits. Sorry, $2.2 million in benefits. Oh, yeah. Which the league revised to a $42.5 million cap with $2.2 million benefits. The union counter- countered with a $49 million salary cap. The league rejected that. And on the 16th of February 2005, Gary Batman announced the cancellation of the 2004-2005 season. What do you have to say about that? No. Before we get into the actual... Nego- uh, Not too, too much. Just that I think when you read out some of those statistics, I think it does prove to you that it was the owner's fighting against themselves. Yes. And the players are the ones that get crucified for it, which so, is unfortunate because it's a lockout. And remember, mm-hmm. we, we kind of said, lockouts oh, semantics, versus strikes. Yeah. semantics, but it's a lockout. It's the owners essentially telling the players that we don't need you, which obviously mm-hmm. is wrong, <laughs> right? Because yeah. it's such a specialized thing. The players do hold the power, but it shows you how hard the owners were negotiating. Like when you tell me some of those numbers, crazy. Mm-hmm. 52 million, no, that's pretty good. Them. Yeah, lowballing them and just like and no questions asked, like not even like negotiating at all, basically. So, you know, the, the players come back with an offer like, oh, we've already conceded on a cap. No, you got to concede all the way down to $40 million, yeah. which is just crazy. So yeah, that's kind of just my thoughts on it. It's it's amazing how much they have to try and fight against themselves. Yeah, it's like without the players, they wouldn't have a product. But yeah. So, so. on 21st of July, 2005, an agreement was reached uh, ending the 310-day lockout. Salary cap was agreed to, which would be adjusted to guarantee players 54% of total league revenues, as well as a salary floor. That's going to come into play in the next lockout. Yeah. So players guaranteed 54% of the league revenues. Yeah. 
which to me, this next point is a huge win because considering how the NFL deals with things, player salaries were guaranteed. Yeah. Contracts 100% guaranteed. That's why you see these buyouts, these sorts of things. Uh, players are guaranteed the full amount of their contracts no matter what. Yeah. Um, players, The player's share of 54% of league revenues would increase if certain revenue benchmarks were reached. So if the league started making fucking money hand over excuse me hand over fist yeah players would get more of that that share um a sure a form of that's revenue- what they say but they never disclose it and sure that's always kind of the question anyway sorry a form of revenue sharing was instituted with a pool from the top 10 highest grossing teams sharing with the lowest 15 teams so yeah. if you're in the middle sink yeah. or sink or swim sink or swim yeah basically you have to it, it's like like uh Welfare, like if <laughs> yeah. you, you have to like qualify for welfare yes. in order to yeah, get the and money. Yeah, there is like there's qualifications you had to meet, like you said, and, and all that kind of stuff. The salary cap would end up being set at thirty nine million. Thirty nine for Think the two thousand five, two thousand six season. Thirty nine million will benefit it? though, because it's the, the reason why the Blues have to trade Pronger and why the Islanders yeah. have to trade uh, Mike Pekka. Pekka. Uh, this, yeah, this is important too, Neil. Bob Goodnow would resign five days after the CF- CBA was signed, replaced by Bob Saskin. Yeah. Big reason, actually, the players themselves wanted him to resign. They felt that he was too hardlined. It was actually costing them. Yeah, uh, but that's and that's where being PA is tricky, executive director, because you're trying to corral 800 to a thousand players and trying to get them all on the same page is very difficult. Because the irony is that the highest, gro- like the high players that make the highest amount of money actually screw some of the ones on the other side mm-hmm. because of just the discrepancy of talent and it ends up messing up the whole money system in general. But anyway, I won't. So it's it's hard to corral them all. So mm-hmm. absolutely, I'm sure Goodnow was getting it from... And there's, you know, argument between the veterans and the, and the rookies absolutely. where the veterans are, yes. yeah, we'll, we'll walk out, like yeah. we'll strike. We want them to get the money. Like we're going to retire some of the rookies. Sure. Like, well, fuck, man. Like we're trying to start our careers, careers here. So, yeah. so definitely... Um, team values actually would rise after the lockout with 26 of the 30 teams claiming to have a higher value. Yep. Um, the NHL would also land a major U.S. television deal with NBC and Versus, yep. as well as launching their NHL network. So the league does benefit here a little bit. Yep. Uh, fast forward to the 2011. The tw- fans come back too. Sorry. Yep. Like that was a big yep. thing. Like their, their attendance went up yep. after an 05, 06. So. Uh, by the 2010, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Put labor talks on the on back hold. burner here. Um, so by 2010, 2011, the Atlanta Thrashers are in financial trouble. Shocker. Uh, claiming they had lost $130 million over the past six seasons. Um, though they attempted to find local ownership, again, like they always try, they couldn't. And they eventually are sold to the Winnipeg-based True North Sports Entertainment with a sale on the 31st of May, 2011. And the approval of the relocation... To the team of the team to Winnipeg on the twenty first of June, twenty eleven. That was my twenty second birthday. Uh, <laughs> nice beginning play in Winnipeg for the 2011-2012 season. So they you're would play. A Jets fan. I'm sorry, mm, not kidding, kidding. They would play uh, out of the Southeast Division for their first season because there was part of the CBA was no no realignment was yes. part of the promise of this old CBA. Yeah. Um, yeah so that, we can talk that. about played, like in the yeah yeah we played. can talk about. The Batman thing here, if you want, um, about him re, which we've talked about off mic before, about his sort of maybe like recommitment to any to Canadian markets, realizing the value of them. I think he does, yeah, and sort of his he definitely has a reluctance uh, to to move struggling franchises, which any league does really. It's it not looks, just again, it looks it looks poor. bad because it, 
it's not only that you're admitting it, it's that now you have to find another way to make it profitable. Like, and people are losing jobs in that city. And, yeah, it yeah. adds a whole dynamic to it, right? But I would say by moving them back to Winnipeg, one of the things I will admit is you didn't hear anything about it. Yeah, the, I didn't mention this, but it is they actually deny that there's a sale going on, and then four days later, it's announced that it's actually been made. Yes. And a big reason with this, and people want to talk about, well, why was he always so reluctant to ever move teams, the Jim Ball silly thing? The NHL and everyone looked like idiots. And Ball Silly was just too fucking loudmouthed. Yeah. And he always was like, well, I'm going to buy the Penguins. I'm going to move them. I'm going to buy this team. I'm going to move them. I'm going to buy that team. I'm going to move them. them. And the NHL doesn't want that. The NHL wants to deal. They, I think they learned their lesson from the 90s yes. of dealing with dumb owners yeah. and hard-headed or hard-headed owners mm-hmm. and wanting to have more of partnerships. Yeah, and, and stability. And yeah. it's a management structure that they're looking for. Yes. Because like you said, they're... There's a reason it takes almost two decades to expand again. Yes. Is that you? You need to a certain type of owner is mm-hmm. now the only owner that you're gonna have, right? Because all the other leagues, it's very similar. It's like it's hard to get a franchise. Well, if you notice, you know, with the Wild, with uh, with the Jets, and eventually with with Seattle and even Vegas, they're more conglomerates. They're not single owners. They're yes. not single entities. It's it's. Corp- Again, it's still corporations, but it's more like entertainment groups that are headed by a single person. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they, they have – that's kind of that – More collaborative. Ma- yeah, that majority owner. You can have a whole bunch of you, but there's still one principal owner, right? Unfortunately, though, 2012, 2013, head to another lockout. Guess what the owners are trying to do now? <laughs> owners are trying to reduce the player share of revenue from 57% to 46%, something they agreed to in the previous CBA. Are now locking them out. They're locking out their workforce of something they agreed to do in their previous collective bargaining. Uh, every time. Man. They want to set a four-year term on all player contracts, maximum of four years, eliminate signing bonuses, and introduce a fixed amount for each year of a player's contract, thus eliminating front-loaded contracts. So this is coming off the heels of like Luongo's contract, Kovalchuk's contract. Yeah. Uh, there's someone in... Uh, no, Parise and Ryan Suters. Big, yeah, so... Again, the owners are coming down on their workforce for things that their colleagues are doing. For the people they hired as managers, general managers, yeah. They want to extend entry-level contracts from three years to five years, five. which is what the NFL has. <laughs> yeah, and that's a big mistake. The Ex- NFL's getting rid of that right extend away. Extend term for reaching UFA status from seven years to ten. <laughs> so you come into the league at 18, you cannot be a UFA until you're 28. Almost at, at this point, almost out of your prime. Like coming out of your prime. <laughs> yep. After having to be in an entry-level deal till you're 23. Yep. <laughs> the players continue to seek revenue sharing along with a salary cap unlinked to league revenues. Um, this, this this lockout, reading about it more, it seems to get a little uglier. Oh, yeah. It's because Donald Fair comes in and is like, hey, enough yeah. of like your posture. I should have mentioned much. that. Donald Fair is now executive director of the yes. NHLPA, not Top Saskin anymore. Yeah. Bob Saskin anymore. Yeah, so he Donald Fair comes in and he negotiated the player strike in MLB. Very something similar to allow for a better salaries essentially for baseball players. That's essentially was his biggest win is that you see salaries start going up throughout the 90s and through the 2000s. Alex Rodriguez signs a $300 million contract. A lot of that is accomplished because of the strike for the Major League Baseball players. And uh, Donald Fear now is heading the NHL. And he's kind of goes toe-to-toe with Batman. That's sort of the... That was really the big narrative of that lockout. Because at one point the union tries to actually dissolve... To make the lockout illegal. Yes. So that's kind of like the ultimate trump card yes. of a union is like you essentially dissolve. 
Because then, yeah, you every single player now that's part of that union, if the union is dissolved, can file an antitrust suit mm-hmm. against the NHL. So that's obviously... But don't want the league countered by filing a class action lawsuit claiming the union was negotiating bad, bad faith, faith which by, you cannot by do. threatening to res- dissolve. Yes, so you can't do that. That's The league also yeah. filed to have all player contracts voided should the union dissolves, dissolve as they were negotiated under the union, thus making all players free agents. Yeah, which would have been crazy. Uh but so, in, I mean, in the end, usually the union would win in this sure. case. Yeah, because the they NHL, don't dissolve though. But it's because the NHL dissolve. has a monopoly on professional hockey in North America. It would be highly unlikely that a court would rule in favor of the NHL in this case. It would likely go with the union because those players—that's how they make a living. But anyway, sorry, just so they no, that's no, yeah. that's because that—that's what I got from this one. This one was more. This one got more cutthroat a little oh, yeah, bit than the last one. Yeah. Um, they do eventually decide on a on a new CBA. Uh, one of the provisions being settling on an eight year maximum contract on any extensions, with a seven year max on new contracts. That therefore giving like the, the the controlling team more of an advantage. Something similar the NBA does mm-hmm. um, with, with their super max contracts. You can have more years and money. A maximum of fifty percent variance in salaries over the course of a contract. So that means if a guy signs, you can't go from four million one year to nine million another year to. Back down to one million or right. something. It has to be within five fifty percent. So four million to six million, right? Because that would be two and a half, two million. Yeah, whatever. You get it. Mm-hmm. Um, the owners agreed to mandatory acceptance of arbitration settlements under three and a half million. That's a big win for for smaller market pl- or for smaller. I shouldn't say smaller players. Uh, less rich players. Yeah, right? mid mid level players. Sure. There yeah. you go. Uh, Salary cap of sixty million with a two year was instituted with a two year transition period, so seventy million in the first year prorated during the shortened season, and up to sixty four million for the 2013-2014 season to allow teams to get under the sixty million dollars. Yeah. Um, so players they don't have the same thing after the first lockout where players are get like a pronger mm-hmm. or a pecker just getting dealt left and right or bought out. Yeah. There were or there were amnesty buyouts as well. Yes. Uh, if you remember correctly, the Oilers, I think, used a couple of those. You got two amnesty buyouts over the course of the two years. Belanger? Oh, yeah. Belanger was one. Was one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who the other one was, actually. I wrote here in my notes. Neil, you'll correct me, I'm sure. But like, I don't really know what this lockout accomplished. As opposed to the one in 05 that seemed to really put in a lot yeah, of... Yeah. So the the biggest win is for the owners in this case. It because, seems like it. Because yeah. they do get the hockey-related revenues basically to 50%. And they put an escrow on player salaries to equal that 50% Mm. if it doesn't equal it in the year. So then essentially the players can lose a portion of their contract that goes strictly to the owner. So that is their kind of win. So if if anyone's ever followed it a little bit now, leading into the next negotiations, that word escrow is kind of like the dirtiest word. because there's potential for another lockout. Yes. I'm almost convinced there will be one. Yeah. So, So, but yeah, that's kind of, that's where the owners, I think, won. Because they, they dropped that hockey-related revenue down to 50-50 split, which is really good. Because I don't think any other uh, league has that, actually. No. So. I'm, I said this to you before, and I'll say it again uh, before we wrap up with Vegas and Seattle. But, you know, f- as a casual fan, you watch all these the negotiations on TSN and Sportsnet or wherever you're watching it. Uh, if you're watching somewhere in the States, NHL Network or whatever. Doubt ESPN covers it as much, <laughs> but uh, and you kind of the problem is is you're you're you hear these players bitching about million dollar contracts and you mm-hmm. think how why am I supposed to have sympathy for a guy who's making 
X million dollars yeah. that he wants more shares, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Batman looks like a bit of a bit of a uh, villain too, because he's the guy who's locking the players out. He's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he stands right on the front lines. After doing all this, you know, research, reading about it, you you have more sympathy for the players, but you also have more sympathy for Batman. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for Batman. Actually, Batman, what he's done for the league. Revenues have grown exponentially. Well, we're going to look at Vegas. Vegas. Like their expansion fees, five hundred million. Seattle's become six hundred and fifty. That that's the the price of like NFL franchises mm-hmm. almost. Like that's crazy. Yeah. To get a hockey, like we're talking fifty million in the nineties to twenty, you know, say twenty five years later, five hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. And I understand like inflation, but still, that is insane. That yeah. percentage is like you said, six fifty for Seattle, six fifty. Yeah. For like a city that's bid three separate times. But the thing that just keeps getting at me, it's like the owners continuously punishing their workforce for their own mistakes. Yes. And it's like, rather than than constantly locking out the NHL, stopping your business, there should be some sort of, like not, they should have some sort of way of ousting shitty owners. (laughs) They should have a way of punishing their colleagues rather than their workforce. Yes. If, If the whole purpose of, Instituting salary caps, luxury taxes on on player salaries, mm-hmm. longer UFA, blah, 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 whatever. Basically, in an effort to reduce spiking salaries because you're claiming paying too much is causing your, your league money because you have one guy, whether it be a Bruce McNall, whether it be a whoever with the Rangers signing whole league to these contracts that are cre- making other salaries creep up. You know, you can argue Kate's signing uh, McDavid to his contract. Sure. He's absolutely caused the spike. MLSE signing, uh, or you can even go back further, and with Chicago signing Kane and Taves to their contracts, Kopitar. Yeah. But if that's your issue, then like, then you should have a way of of having checks and balances on those owners and not making your workforce suffer. Because it's like, what's Patrick Kane supposed to do? He gets a ten million dollar offer. He goes, no, you know what? Yeah. In in the interest of the league, I should probably sign an eight million dollar contract. Like that's fucking dumb. <laughs> yeah. It's. I don't know it, it actually drives me crazy a little bit that this is the fact that we're headed for another lockout in 2021 probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're gonna now argue escrow because the the players basically look at it as a way of them having their salaries docked for yes. nothing. Yes, and that's and that's it's it's not even so much that absolutely it may be helping get to that 50-50 split. It's just the optics of all of a sudden you're getting your state taxes taken off. You're getting mm-hmm. your uh other like you go into a different state, it gets taken off of there. Like you have all these fees taken off. It's this escrow number that you almost never see again. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, is that it goes into the owners. Like so, they get all these escrow payments taken off their salaries, and then it's basically transferred to the owners, and then the owners distribute it, and then they sometimes get a refund on it. Like mm-hmm. the players sometimes get that money back, but they never get the full amount. They've never gotten the full amount, and at one point they got like a million dollars back out of like a twelve million, like mm-hmm. taken off total or whatever, like crazy amount, like barely anything back. So that's just like you said, it's just the optics of like looking like, oh, I'm just losing this cash. Yet six hundred and fifty million dollars of this expansion fee, all the owners get that, and it's never and, that's and never still distributed to the, the playoff players. revenues. I mean, you mentioned playoff you revenues. don't have to name the team, but yeah, they're you know. There, we, there's, we get some inside info that, like, yeah, Vancouver is making almost $10 million, like, or six, around $6 million a game. A game. Taking home $6 million a game. And, you know, even with in, in increased playoffs. playoff bonuses, the players aren't nearly seeing no. that. So. Exactly. So 
it's tough. It's a tough look for the players to be like, well, they're six hundred fifty million dollars divided amongst thirty teams. What about twenty million dollars mm-hmm. each? Like that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Just literally pocketing that. Mm-hmm. Players don't see any of that twenty million. So from the team. So well, but so we we'll wrap it up with the last couple expansions, maybe some future sites. So Vegas. 2017, 22nd of June, 2016, the Consortium Black Knight Sports Entertainment, led by Bill Foley, and the Maloof family are awarded a franchise for Vegas to play 2017, 2018, paying expansion fee of $500 million. Uh, during the 2017 NHL, NHL expansion draft. The Oilers lose defenseman Griffin Reinhardt. Uh, there's a whole <laughs> podcast about that. We could go on about Shrelly's mistakes. And then um, on the 4th of December 2018, the Seattle Hockey Partners, a group led by Todd Luecki, who you should look up and see all his, I didn't even realize how involved he's been in sports, but he was like COO in the NFL. He was in with the Seahawks, uh, the Sounders in in the MLS. Um, Yeah, he's been all around sports in the Seattle area for a long time. So him, David Bonderman, and Jerry Bruckheimer, producer... Survivor release the tape. Release probably. the tapes, Bruckheimer. Yeah, Survivor like, He's fame. got the Trump thing apparently. Yeah. Or is it, and Pirates of the Caribbean. Yep. That's a big yep. one for Jerry Bruckheimer. Uh, they were awarded a franchise, paying a six hundred fifty million expansion fee, as we talked about. Set to begin play for the twenty twenty one season at the new arena at Seattle Center. I like how just the new arena. Oh, quickly, uh, Vegas. They, they, Cody Glass was their first pick in the twenty seventeen right, draft. Right. Um, they could begin play for the twenty twenty. 2020-2021 season. That's hard to say. There's a lot of 20s in there. There it is. 2021. 20, 2020 Yeah. Okay. Uh, but push back to the 20... 21. To the 21-22 season because of the potential of another lockout in 2021. Yes. It could happen earlier. Because they have an opt-out, right? opt-out. So th- we, will, we will know soon. We will know uh, September of this year. Mm. Yeah. If... if uh, the PA decides to opt out or the owners, one of the two. So fuck's sake. I'm convinced the owners will not opt out. So actually, I think if anyone opts out, it'll probably be the PA. So that we'll know by this year, like early this year. All right. And then just a quick little wrap up. Um, any other expansion teams, other markets possibly? Um, <laughs> if anything, uh, with now with 32 teams, relocation is the most likely. Yeah. Um, it's probably going to be a relocation. Arizona being the most likely team. Um, Especially if. As of 2018, they claim to have an operating loss of $19 million still. Uh, they act, the rival of the Golden Knights were supposed to act as a geographical and divisional rival. But with Seattle coming in, Phoenix is going to be moved to the Central Division anyway. Yeah. So that's not really going to do much. Um, they've had issues. They were in downtown Phoenix. They moved to Scottsdale. Uh, and then they had some issues with the arena deal there. They've... They were bankrupt. They were owned by the league for a while, which yeah. was kind of considered a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. They do have local ownership, but they're they, they're having issues. So if they're the most likely team, um, possibly the Panthers are mentioned a lot. Yeah, Carolina was mentioned. Dundon, just, who just bought them, he's, has deep pockets. He's so. got deep pockets. He was involved with the AAF and then folded it like five days later because he's like, well, this isn't viable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the most likely places that they could go, um, we mentioned Houston. So the owner, I think Houston is probably the hands down because the Houston Rockets owner now wants Houston. exactly. So same thing. It's not uh, Les Alexander anymore. I don't remember who the current owner is, but again, he owns Maroney or something. Yeah, like that. he owns the Rockets and the Toyota Center. He has an agreement. Uh, he's apparently had 
meetings with Batman. Yeah, he, said, he, he wants hockey He there. said he wants a team there, so he's the only one who can really have one. So if he wants it, it's his, essentially. Um, the Rockets are well-run basketball team, actually. Too, Quebec so. City, we've mentioned, uh, they've they've redone their Colisee Pepsi, so there's a potential there for relocation. I think the Maybe biggest thing is the, the Canadian dollar. If it was on par, I exactly. believe there would be a team in Quebec because that's what we've kind of said. I think Batman, how good Winnipeg has been yeah. for the league, I think he does realize that those markets in Canada are valuable. Well, uh, there was like the Ryan Whitney mentioned on Spinning Chicklets, like when a Canadian team goes deep. The yeah, amount of money that t- players get back is lot is so there's there's so much incentive to actually yes. have Canadian teams in the league. Yeah, um, Hamilton, uh, they, they've always talked about that's where Bill Balsilli had wanted to move the Penguins to. Yeah, um, so the the closest that had ever happened was in the ninety two expansion with mm. Ottawa and Tampa Bay. Oh, they, they got instead of Ottawa most. Yeah. yeah, there no there was a there was an ownership group by with Ron Joyce was his name. Oh, right. Yes. And he owned Tim Hortons. Yeah. So he's a he owns like multiple Tim Hortons too. So he's a he would have been a really solid he'd be what the owner what the NHL would be looking for yeah. now. Yeah. And he wanted to move a team to Hamilton. Didn't want to but, pay 50 but he didn't want to pay fifty million dollars and so the NHL just like dismissed him. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably as close as we ever were going to come to an, a second team in Southern mm-hmm. Ontario because really the Toronto, Leafs, what incentive like and from Toronto's Buffalo. perspective they have no incentive. Yeah. Toronto has no incentive or then Buffalo like you said. Like they don't want to give that up those territorial rights. So. Yeah, there's been studies done that they say the, because the Canadian fans are so rabid as opposed even though the American population is 9 times out of Canada, 10 times that, the amount of actual hockey fans in Canada is about the same. Yeah. Um so Canada could support 11 to 12 teams, another team in Vancouver, although with Seattle going in that kind of takes that away. Yeah. Another team in Montreal they say, another team in Toronto, the Golden mm-hmm. Horseshoe. Um Saskatchewan, which Neil and I talked about, where it's like, well, would For you fun. put it in? Would you put it in Saskatoon? They got a pretty low population. It's less than Winnipeg. Regina is even smaller, so I just put it right smack dab in the fucking middle, right? <laughs> so we looked at uh, Google Maps. We we looked it up, and we we chose Davidson, Saskatchewan. Yeah, the 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 proud owners of the eighth Canadian or the tenth Canadian franchise. Yeah, eighth, eighth. What eighth, are we at right now? Eighth, we're at seven. We're at yeah. seven yeah, eighth Canadian franchise. Population of a thousand, but they're right in the middle of Regina, Saskatoon. Just build a train. Build a train. We're saying build a train from each city. Sell direct nothing but lines. Pilsners. Yes. Sell nothing but Pilsners on that train and yeah. just get them. A free, free, free train ride with the game. Yeah, with exactly. Your exactly. And you can just right back there to your home. That's half a million people right there that are going to go to that. Go to be be a proud, rabid, Davidson. passionate fans. I don't fans. know what their name would be. The, the Pilsners. No, they, they would be Saskatchewan. Uh, well, knowing that they're creative, they'd just be the Rough Riders. <laughs> Oh no! But like how Ottawa did it, where Rough Riders is two words. That's right. I like it because then you have the Rough Riders, one word yeah. in the CFL, and the Rough and Riders have, in yeah, the NFL they'd have or to the be, NHL. They have to be green. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 The color of wheat, apparently. I don't know. Okay. Would they make their helmet well, a watermelon? <laughs> <laughs> Would they have pink helmets Man, with their green jerseys? When I was when I was in oh, uh, when I was in we're really uh, talking some good stuff now. When I was in Salzburg, Austria, uh, I went to see a Austrian league game. Sure. And that Red Bull is from Salzburg, Austria. Sure. That's where it's from. And their team is the the Red Bulls. They're the Salzburg Red Bulls. And their helmets are like Red Bull cans. 
That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. See, now we're talking. Yeah, man. What, what if you have a Pilsner, Pilsner box oh, as the helmet? Oh, yeah. Look, if they make those little yeah. uh, cowboy hats out of right? it or whatever. Like, make a helmet out of it. And Okay, uh, so, Neil, talking. we just need to find some close friends of ours and drum up the $650 million expansion yeah. fee, and we're doing it. Probably more, because we got to build a train now, too. <laughs> oh, so yeah, right. That's probably going to cost $800 a million? Couple, uh, a billion bucks? billion dollars, I think. Okay, Canadian all we need to dogs. do is you need to go to we all need to go to separate provinces and states, all win lotteries. Yes. Bring them all back to Canada so we get all the money back, the tax yeah. money back, and then we're we're, we're set. <laughs> we're set. Win a couple <laughs> couple of those, and I think we'll be okay. I like it. All right. Well, that's kind of it. That we went through the entire fucking history of the <laughs> NHL in a two episode podcast. So yeah. I, if we don't win a goddamn Pulitzer or whatever Peabody. for this Peabody, yeah, there we go. Then I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> um, anything else you want to touch on, Neil? Nope. Kind of. I no, think I think Batman gets a bad rap. But I agree. He's done a lot for the league. I agree. But I, I, he, I think he's the- fun to hate though, so I can't. You know. But I, I would say that looking back, the the revenue, the reason. I think we were kind of joking a little oh, bit. Oh, that's about- the last thing before you. Yeah, just Sorry. to touch on what you're talking about with Bettman, the, the last little note I have here is that uh, at the time when he took over, uh, NHL was seeing revenues of around 400 million. Yeah. He claims that they're over uh, two, 3 billion now. 3 yeah. billion. So. so there you go. So the exponential growth. Um, but I would say that even though the league is in a good spot, I mm-hmm. would say overall, right? They're getting lots of deals left, right, and center. They just got a huge Rogers deal in Canada. They, they seem to have got... enough talent now to fill out 32 yes, teams, exactly. which is what was a big issue in the nineties that like just not enough talent to go around. Yeah. It happened both times. major With these American, happened. now that Nashville has been around for 20 years, Dallas has been around yes. for 25 years. Like you're going to start, you seeing... have American players. Like this kid that the Oilers signed not too long ago, Logan day. Like he's from Florida. Like you yeah. have players from Florida, uh, I think Jack Hughes is from Florida. Or the Hughes brothers are from Florida or something. Yeah, it could be. So like you even Matthews Austin from, Matthews, yeah, from Arizona, whatever. Yeah, but it's you're gonna start seeing those labor. And so I think overall we were kind of saying that like ah, it might be headed towards a lockout. But I think both sides do recognize that they are in a really there's good no spot. real benefit from losing more time. There's not. Not right now, because they are the strongest they've ever been yeah. right now. Man, you know you can talk about sports even, in general. Even like, though NBA has that more of that uh nhl or sorry tv money yeah so they, the players are making a lot of more money you have less players on a roster that's kind of that works out there are some cities and franchises where nhl does out rank and uh, nba viewership yep. it, it's true i mean yeah. when you have teams you have places in the nhl like pittsburgh don't have an nba team right so pittsburgh is always high up there for for watch i mean st louis they're always kind of low mm-hmm. they don't they say they haven't really turned much of a revenue, but St. Louis is seems to be garnering a really hardcore fan base. I mean, I will say that that's what NHL is kind of embracing that, that hardcore fan. Yes, they're they're not doing those flinners like yes. you're saying. They don't they're not going after the fickle fans. They're yes. going after the hardcores. Exactly. They're a niche market, and they're starting to lean into that. I've always said this, and I do believe it. The NHL is, even though it is a pro league, they're more college than they are professional mm-hmm. in the sense of with the fan base, right? Like, yeah. you know. The Oilers could be an LSU group, if in, in a sense, right? Like yeah. outside of it, like whatever people they'll mm-hmm. watch the Tigers or whatever, but they care enough that whoever the next prospect is on the team. Yeah. But within the city, like look at the Oilers, man. We have we've made the playoffs thirteen times, or yeah, I wish one time in thirteen, <laughs> one time in thirteen years, <laughs> and yet we're still selling out the arena, like. Yeah. You know, we bitching and complaining about the Lucic contract and how we need right. to either buy him out or trade. But if he but if he scores a goal, we're right there behind him. Like yeah. 
So I'm not saying every fan base in the NHL is an Oilers fan base, but I would they're say close to. close to. They're close to. They are. And John Hamm, man, John Hamm's going to fucking Blues no, games. No, like, people, and, and, and like, that's I'm, what the NHL's I'm, getting. They're getting the celebrities going yeah. to these games and stuff. And, and American fans that are hockey fans are just the same as Canadians sure. because it is that sort of like unique game, and they are hardcore about it. Like, there's no doubt about it. You don't get a place like Nashville. Getting that, unless it's like a hardcore fan base, you know, Carrie Underwood and yeah. Tim McGraw going to the games yeah, and stuff like absolutely. that. Right? It's so. like a thing. So yeah, they're in a good spot. So I'm hopeful that there isn't a lockout mm-hmm. and the expansion with Seattle adds more intrigue again. Yeah, I do think they maybe need to contract or relocate a couple more. Sure. Yeah, some like the Phoenixes, but they don't have to do it this second because they, they have enough overall money. Exactly. Right. So. Um, you're never going to have a professional league that has completely Perfect. healthy franchise. Yeah. Like even the NFL has, like the Titans rarely yeah. get. But even then, they they are the healthiest. They're better at sharing. But it's only their partially revenues. because they just have the most money. Yes, like they have the most cash. Well, because it's because they're the franchises that are the richest are just the richest. Like, do they have they have the Cowboys? They yes. have the Giants. The right? Cowboys they can have... share revenue four hundred million dollars and still turn a profit of seven hundred exactly. million because they if, made out. If the NHL had one of those, they'd be in the same boat. So. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So I hope you guys really enjoyed these two episodes. They were a lot of fun for me and Neil to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil and I to do. Uh, learned a lot. It's interesting. The reason we wanted to go through this is just interesting how it's all tied together from Eagleson yes. to the Gretzky trade to. The cartel that was the original yeah. six to all. It's just yeah. An when interesting you hear word. dead puck era, like what that's kind of all about. Yep. When you see scoring go way up, and why, why it was up in the seventies, why it was down in the nineties. Yeah, right? it's interesting. It all coincides together. It's all connected. It really does make you appreciate the current game, and yeah. it really does make you appreciate what guys like McDavid and Ovechkin and Crosby can do. Because with the more teams, the more the talent pool is high. Yeah, it, it's impressive. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, like I said, if you like these two episodes, please share them. Share the entire podcast. Uh, if you're not already subscribed, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Um, uh, uh, check the show notes. I didn't mention this the first episode, but check the show notes for uh, where we did our research from, uh, courtesy of some books and Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> Got to give credit where credit's due. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, next week, <laughs> next week we're going to do a. A fun episode. Uh, take a little bit of a break from the heaviness that was uh, talking about lockouts and yeah. player salaries and embezzlement. Um, not much of a party, it seemed, going on in the NHL for a while. But next week is going to be a bit of a party as we're going to go over the first season of Jersey Shore. Unreal. Okay. Uh, until next time, Neil. Nothing. All right. Thanks, guys. Tips off. <laughs>